We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to, to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know... I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates female celebrity memoirs. I'm your host, Chelsea DeMontes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes a man stuff, too. Today, we are book clubbing a fantastic memoir. It is The Singer Jewel. Her memoir was written in 2015. It's titled Never Broken with the tagline, songs are only half the story. I think this is an incredible title, an incredible tagline, and the best celebrity memoir photo ever. I think it's in the top five. It is Jewel barefoot on a horse in this like beautiful orange dress. And there's like a landscape behind her. I'm going to post it on my Instagram and on the Patreon so you can see it for yourself. I should have known from the cover how much I would love this book. It's giving cults. It's giving momagers and truly beautiful introspection. I can't wait to talk about it. So let's dive in. Another day, another dollar, another wall, another towel went up where the homeless had their homes. So we prayed with many different gods as there are flowers, but we call religion our friend. We're so worried about saving our souls, afraid that God will take his toll that we forget to begin. Oh, 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 
Our guest today has worked as a personal essayist since her teens, contributing to numerous publications, websites, and anthologies, most notably her own award-winning personal blog, Girls Gone Child. Her essays have appeared on Refinery29, Lit Hub, Entertainment Weekly, Huffington Post, Parenting, and more. She currently authors the column Sex and the Single Mom on Romper.com and the Braid Newsletter on Substack. She is the author of Rockabye, From Wild to Child, and all of this, a memoir of death and desire. She lives in Los Angeles with her son and three daughters. Please welcome Rebecca Wolf. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so thrilled to be meeting you. And I have to give a shout out to The Cookies, which is the name for everyone in the book club. Um, They DM'd me and told me to go find you and your memoir when I was posting a story on Instagram about women sharing and quote unquote, uh, oversharing or people seeing women share details that culture is like, that's distasteful. And so everyone was like, you have to go find Rebecca. So I have a, this is my first question for you. Why do you think everyone was like, go talk to Rebecca Wolf about this? Well, I'm so honored. And actually somebody had DM'd me your story Met, and like my name being coming up in your story, somebody mentioning it. Yeah. I was like, look, people are talking about you. And I was like, oh. and I think I like immediately followed you. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. Like I, yeah. I, just, I felt really honored that I was referenced in that way and that several people had mentioned my book and I don't consider it oversharing, obviously. Yeah. I feel like yeah. oversharing sort of feels like a little bit of a critique on just women telling their stories. Yeah, it feels um, very sexist. Like Totally. It's- like, yeah. do you, do you ever hear like, oh, that fucking man is oversharing on like that book, like he's oversharing, like you usually yeah. hear it in the context of women, um, female storytellers, like, you know, non-cis white head male storytellers. So yeah. I, like even with Prince Harry, do you remember when, um, that part of his memoir kind of went viral where he was talking about like using his mom's cream on his dick. And I think, I believe he called it Todger. I'm sorry. I said dick, but um, anyways, people were like, <laughs> Whoa, that's crazy. Why did you include that? But he didn't, they still weren't like you're oversharing, you're gross. Get out of here. You know what? Like, I feel like it's a very distinct, subtle difference. Yeah. I think women are expected word that we're supposed to be secretive. I use this analogy yeah. all the time in my work and when I talk about this, that we, I don't know if you were given a diary as a child, but almost every little girl I know was given the same diary, the same padlock, the same like hot pink diary. And we were told to keep our secrets there. And I think, Mm. you know, we're conditioned to believe that we're, we're protecting ourselves by doing that. But really in actuality, we're protecting everyone else. And boys aren't given those diaries. I mean, maybe some are, but it was very much like specifically a little girl gift, right? Like they're all pink. hundred percent. And you hide your journal and you hide your diary. And yes, I admit, I just, oh, had thousands of journals. Um, Well, no wonder people were like, go find Rebecca. And then you were so kind. You sent me a copy of your memoir, which I am loving. And I only... (laughs) paused it to finish Jewel for this podcast episode. And I just feel very geeked to have a memoirist as my guest for this memoir. So oh I'm, I, I, yeah, you're just thrilling to talk to. Also, we both have bangs. Big shout I out know, to us. I know. Look, I know. I love, I love us. We Big have, shout like, out we to really... adult women in bangs. <laughs> totally. So, so okay. here for it. Here's my first question. What made you pick Jewel? Cause I sent you the list and immediately you're like, it's Jewel. What brought you to this memoir? 
Okay, so when Pieces of You came out, that album was so formative for me. Like, I loved that CD. Like, I, I had listened to it to the point where, like, I had the liner notes up in my on my bulletin board by my bed. The, the, the jewel case was broken to a million pieces, and I had to, like... Remember when, like, a CD would break, and you would yeah. have to, like, kind of, like, figure out how to put it back together whenever you yes. opened it? It was like that. And then when, um, so that, to, wait, what was the name of her poetry book? A Night Without Armor? Yes, A Night Without Armor. As soon as you walked into my room, I was just like such a fan of her and her poetry and her music. Yeah. Um, it like really hit me in that sweet spot at that age. So I saw, immediately saw the list and she was the person out of all of them that I had the most visceral reaction to. So I I am so glad you chose her book and that you are the guest for this. You know, I've been doing this podcast almost three years. Jules memoir has been on our list all three years. No one has come forward to to choose the book. No takers. This is a sincere memoir. Maybe that's also why I love it. And okay, so let's, let's dive in. So I first want to begin by calling out book club drinking bingo. Joseph Campbell is one of the quotes and Joseph Campbell is, he's on our bingo as like, he shows up in every memoir, you know, he's got to the the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. So take your drink to get started. And then (laughs) I want to read, so she's, she has poems throughout the book, but I want to read a few paragraphs from the foreword because she lays out, she lays out the story. It was great. Okay. I should probably not be here today. I should probably not even be alive. Being alive, I should have become an addict, knocked up as a teenager, or stuck romantically in a cycle of abuse. If you look at my life at any stage, you might have said, this girl will never make it, and you probably would have been right. What I had going for me, however, was that at a fairly early age, I figured out what I wanted, happiness. You have to know what you want to ever be able to have it. And then she says, here are the broad strokes. And she lays out the story. She talks about her two brothers and her being raised in a musical family in Anchorage, Alaska. She says her childhood was creative at best, abusive at worst. And at 15, she was finally fed up and she moves out on her own. And then she writes later, I became homeless later that year. I was discovered by record labels at 19. I became a worldwide phenomenon at 21, traveling the globe nonstop. I fell in love at 25. At 30, I found out that not only was all my money gone, but I was several million dollars in debt. The same year, I came to feel that my mom, who was also my manager, was not the person I believed she was. And here I am today, 40 years old, newly divorced. I earned back a fortune. I'm discovering new ways to do business. Finally, there is my greatest success. I am lucky enough to be a mother. So I I personally loved that she hit every beat of the entire story before we read it. What did you think of this style choice just as a, yeah, as a choice you can make in your memoir to tell you the story before you read the story? Um, I have really, actually have mixed feelings about yeah. it. I, I like taking the journey when I'm reading, uh, especially a person's memoir. I like to be surprised. Yeah. Um, you want to go on the ride of the story. Yeah. And there was some stuff in like that you were reading that I knew about already. Um, in fact, I grew up in San Diego and and would go to the coffee shops where she would perform. I never saw her, but I would go looking for her. I love um, that. To try to find her. So like her homelessness and like her, that whole part of her story was also something that like didn't resonate with me. I wasn't a homeless teenager, but it was something obviously at that age that was like really like I was kind of riveted by her story. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And the press definitely, I remember, like really leaned into that that headline, which was a very true headline. Yep. Yep. For sure. I am with you where normally when taking a story or a book, like I want to be surprised. I want to believe in your mother with you and then be so shocked at what happens. But the reason I think I liked it so much, especially in a celebrity memoir, is that like unless you are uh, and she is a writer, but unless you are a memoirist, like that specific type of writer, it's very hard. I have found for celebrities to write their story in the way that it can surprise you. So, okay. So another surprise for me, they were Mormon. Did you know she grew up Mormon? I didn't know that before yeah. this book. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was really shocked. And so which is like she- to, your po- well, to your point, it's so interesting because I feel like we know so much more about like present day celebrities than we did yeah. about like in the nineties. Like I remember recently finding out that Alanis Morissette, when Jagged Little Pill came out, she was like 19 or 20. I thought she was yeah. like 40 years old. Like we had, we were given such a limited like context, very little information. Yeah. Yes. So it's yeah. really interesting to read about these people that were so formative at that time because we didn't have TMZ internet, like any of these things giving us, like filling us in on any sort of gossip. So we didn't totally, like, I didn't know about the mom either. I like, we did such a deep dive after this. Like, oh, me whoa. Too. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, and kick. also, um, yeah, I, I don't think I had in mind what Jules age was, but I certainly didn't guess. I, I wasn't thinking like 19, yeah. you know, she's a teenager. And also Alanis Mars said, this is what I learned. She was dating um, the full house guy. Dave, Dave, yeah. Dave Collier. Could, could, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Who was 30, mm-hmm. 30 years old. Anyways. Okay. Well, also, did you know about episode. Sean Penn? I didn't know about yeah. Sean. Okay. I cannot <laughs> wait to talk about Sean Penn and Jewel. And no, I did not know. Okay. So let's talk about some of the childhood. So she's uh, raised in Anchorage, Alaska on a homestead. She has an outhouse. They are, it's extreme poverty. I will say this is the only memoir to date who, when they started at the beginning, started with their grandparents and I enjoyed it. I will say every other time this happens, I'm like, how dare you? But this one is like her grandpa Yule coming over on a boat and like yodeling his way out of death. And, um, (laughs) her grandma, like, being like, I didn't love him. I just wanted to be in a free country and I had to, and we thought Alaska, but yeah. Uh, so I mm-hmm. liked all that. Did you like that? I did too. I, yes, I do. I, I appreciate like an origin story. So then she, what are the next big moves? She starts performing with her father at a really young age. Yeah. And, like bars and like truck stop, like really sort of places where she shouldn't, or most, I shouldn't say shouldn't, no judgment, but like places where you wouldn't normally find a six-year-old. Yeah. yeah, I am. I think shouldn't is the correct word because they are IDing people at the door to be 21 and older. Yeah. And like when the cops come, she has to like hide in hide. the restrooms. And yeah. And her family like makes their living from these gigs. And then one day her mom is like, I don't want to be a mom anymore. Mm-hmm. Why don't you take the kids? And it's never really explained. And there's like a lot of lies. And she and her brothers are raised by their dad who is sometimes physically abusive and emotionally Mm. abusive. And, and so she hates him so much, but also, and loves her mom, but Mm. she, as she keeps writing, like, I didn't understand that my mom abandoned us. And and my dad was the only one who would take care of us. I thought she like idolized her mom, which I found to be heartbreaking. Is that how you read it? Yeah, for sure. This idea that her, her mother left because her mother left, she's sort of perfect because she doesn't ever get to see her as the struggling parent. And so it's a really interesting perspective, this idea that like the parent who leaves 
the parent who abandons essentially. And I know a lot of people who have this experience, mainly with fathers who abandon them. There's a little bit of this, you know, this pedestal that they're placed on because they never got to see them for worse. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're here with the the one parent who's there doing it all on their own. I get it. I'm a single parent. I've been doing it on my own for five years. It's really hard. And this mom, it like sets up her whole dynamic to want love from her mom. That's going to play out through her career in a way where she has to like earn her mom back Mm -hmm. in her mind. Totally. Yeah. And the way those dynamics switch, I cannot wait to talk about that. And then she just had, she had so many little gems of wisdom. So there's one on page 22 where she said, you know, she's a fourth grader singing in bars. And she said, my lack of music history has vexed me for much of my life. At the same time, I think having the silence in which to develop my own sound was priceless. These are the moments when I feel connected to her. Like I feel the same way about uh, mm. comedy because we didn't grow up with TV. And so you're like, oh, my God, I'm missing so much. But at the same time, like, would I have been able to, like, find my unique voice had I been, you know, inundated with other people's? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you have that with in your writing or just like, you know, the influences we take in and then they become ours. Oh, I, I feel that way about college. I'm very sanctimonious about the fact yes. that I've never taken a writing class in my life, didn't go to college for it, don't have an MFA and a like a sea of, you know, writers who do. And I feel very, like, very in touch with that part of myself. That's like, you know, fuck the man. I'm going to do it on my own. And I don't have any influences. You know, I never had a teacher. I love that. Yes. Because then there's like a, it's like, I believe in studying and education. I also believe in like the purity of your voice being untouched by institutions that don't actually help you. Totally. Yeah. Totally. No wonder they told us to team each other. (laughs) (laughs) So then she talks about how uh, she said, I was confused, scared, hurt, but I was alive in there. She's talking about her childhood. At least I had that. Maybe if I didn't let it go, maybe if I used words like Hansel and Gretel used breadcrumbs, I could find my way out of the woods and avoid being eaten by the witch and the wolves, maybe. And then she talks about emotional English and how, emotions are not taught to people and how she could feel she was in live mm-hmm. alive inside and to like protect the part of her that could maybe be more in life and try and and try and like give into that as she goes through this like very very traumatic childhood yeah um which is like these are the lessons where I was like damn Jewel is really throwing down like this is where it's like this is a self-help memoir totally <laughs> yeah and then I'm curious what you thought of this one of my favorite parts of the book is she talks about how uh, she says, in some families, this brings siblings closer together, but it seemed to splinter us, talking about like having an abusive parent. And she says, it took years of reflection to see that being the favorite can be a worse trap as it leaves no door to exit by. Loyalty to the loved one receives, dysfunctional as it may be, is sometimes too strong a force to break free from. I had no idea what a gift it was, that at least I knew I wanted out because her brother was her dad's favorite and she wasn't. And like Mm. her siblings aren't close. It reminded me of like Ashley Judd not being Naomi Judd's favorite, but then she gets to live the healthier life. Yeah. Um, I just loved all these. um, I loved all these siblings lessons. I I feel like all throughout this, there's a sort of like recurring theme of her trying to find the exit, like the, the emergency exit in every situation she's in. And I think that comes from trauma, obviously. It also comes from like 
resilience and um, the self-awareness that she had. Like you can see her looking for the emergency exit as soon as yeah. she realizes she's in danger. That's such a great point that, and, and a theme throughout the book. She's always looking for the emergency exit like a hundred times in, in her own story. She has to like find it and leave. Yeah. Like obviously like we, no one wants to be traumatized and we shouldn't glorify trauma, but there is something to be said for having that kind of resilience, especially as an artist, especially as someone who becomes famous very quickly um, yeah. is, to, is to know, is like not to basically not to trust your surroundings. Yeah. So she writes this about surviving in their traumatic childhood. She said, great survivors have the ability to yield, adapt and give. And she said, I walked home deep in thought and wrote in my book, things that don't bend break. This lyric has stayed with me my whole life, reincarnated in many songs. And then she talks about slow growth meant thoughtful growth. And it's leading to like the title of this book, which mm -hmm. is never broken because, and, and to slowly grow and that way you become bendable versus like rigid and hard. And she said to stay in my body, even when I was in pain, I have summoned this motto repeatedly in my life. Later, it helped me handle my agoraphobia, crippling fear and anxiety while I was homeless. It helped me to have the courage to lose weight the right way when the press dubbed me the fat Renee Zellweger at 22 and the countless other decisions that shaped me as an artist, which is this same thing of things that don't bend break. Mm. And so, yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. I loved reading the title of the book. And then also just like, we're in this like beautiful poetry. And then she's like, remember when you guys called me fat Renee Zellweger when I was 22 years old? And I was, I, it instantly transported me back to that heroin chic early aughts that um, haunts me now, haunts me, haunts, haunts women till this day. Oh yeah, totally. And and like she, there's an entire chapter devoted to her teeth. I think there's like a chapter called some like there's a like will she fix her teeth is the chapter title. Yeah, it's so funny because I didn't forget that that's what it was like. But when you start like reading it back and remembering, like she was getting a lot of criticism for the way she looked. And like I have to say, I saw Jewel once in real life at Toast on Third Street at brunch. <laughs> Amazing. Uh huh maybe 15 years ago. And okay. I literally saw her and was like, that's one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. Like, oh yeah, she was sitting, you know, she was having breakfast or whatever and like, whatever, like breakfast clothes. Like she was stunning and in a way that like I was not expecting at all. Especially because of how the media painted her. Yeah, and she, yeah. I mean, that wasn't like really her bag. Like she wasn't like this glammed out, you know, person just like coming from her background and then you know she's gonna have to go through all this stuff about her looks and then you know another little thing we have in common is we both started stealing a lot as teenagers mm -hmm. um and it comes from desire but it also comes from something uh, a deeper I don't I, I almost said acting out and I'm like what I, <laughs> you're acting out I can't really put my finger on it maybe because I'm too close to it but when she started talking about all her stealing I was like yes uh this cuts close did you ever steal as a kid I I once stole a Bonnie Bell chapstick from Long's Drugs and I was so I felt so guilty about it that I went back to the store the next day and like put it back on the shelf <laughs> like beautiful had it in my sleeve and like so I was a terrible klepto but I my entire social circle were all like kicked out of Nordstrom's for life like wow, I ran yeah. with a lot of thieves so those are <laughs> 
those are my people. So you're my people. I just <laughs> yeah. didn't have the constitution for it. Yeah. I mean, it's not something I'm, I'm, for, I'm not like <laughs> proud. I wish I hadn't, but I do. There, there are many reasons that drive a child to steal. And I definitely resonated with the ones yeah. that, that were pushing her to do it. And cause she's all, cause she's also so deep and sincere. You know, I think the chapter this is in is called, you can't outrun the pain and how you can try to outrun the pain, but like you never can. And then also I think in this same chapter is the sheer amount of times in this book that she narrowly escapes a sexual assault. Yeah. I mean, and she, I love how much detail she includes of like when she know, when she felt it, the time she pulls knives on them, the time when mm-hmm. she tells her dad and he doesn't believe her and like all these things of, um, there's just so much wisdom in it. And also there was a time where she thinks something's going to happen and then doesn't happen. Yeah. And her acknowledging that too, that like, there are so many times we're so, again, looking for the emergency exit. I think all women do, especially like after a certain amount of experiences, like in terms of like sexual situations when you're alone yeah. with men, like, I think we all have that, like, even like when I get in an Uber, I'm like thinking about, you know, yeah. if who, I need to get the fuck out. Who knows where I am, who totally. has the location. Yeah. Are the doors locked? So I thought it was interesting that she not only spoke to the times where she was in danger, but also spoke to the times where she wasn't, but felt like she could be and how you realize like how much energy, like as women, we have to fucking carry in our bodies at all times just to be on alert Right. And how much that is also a part of life that, yeah, yeah that, that's such a good point. And that that's its own kind of trauma. That feeling yeah. when you're like gaslighting yourself, you're like, well, I got a weird vibe and I was wrong. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm paranoid? Right. Like you yeah. start to like, well, and it's so interesting that you say that's a kind of trauma because it is just the experience of being a woman <laughs> or being an other. I think that's so astute. Okay. So then, um, okay. So a lot happens, but she goes back and forth between her dad's house, her mom's house. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of fend for yourself. Her mom is like moving. And so she has to go back to live with her dad and, and she's really dreading it. And so her mom says, well, why don't you just like move out on your own? Mm-hmm. And she's 15 years old. And she was like, yeah, I mean, why not? I'd already been do like living on my own in many ways. And so I, I just figured like I would move out and she gets a deal from her uncle on a place that's $400 a month. And she goes to make the deposit and finds that her jar of cash from playing gigs is gone. And this is foreshadowing to mm-hmm. her mom taking her money for the rest of her life. But Um, I also lived on my own for just a small amount of time when I was 15, because I think about this all the time of like, I go back to when I was these young ages and how I just really felt in control. But then when I see someone who is the same age, I'm like, you're a child. (laughs) Yeah. I have, my son is, I'm about to drop him off at college next week. Um, he's 18. And when I was his age, I moved to LA and lived by myself when I was 18. So I'm like, I'm looking at him thinking, at his age, I moved to LA, lived in an apartment alone, was like, I could totally handle this. I can't even wrap my head around. I'm like, how did my parents let me do that? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's wild. It's wild being a parent and it's wild being a parent of, of older kids because yeah. yeah, it's true. You like go back in time and you're like, wait, I was this age once. And how did yeah. I, huh? How did I think this and do this? Yeah. But you're like, you're 15, you're 15. And your mom is like, yeah, you should go, go live by yourself. Bye. And you know, it's just accepted around her. Um, okay. So 
a lot of things happen, but this kind of next big thing is that someone tells her, they hear her sing, and they're like, hey, I bet you could get a scholarship to Interlochen uh, Arts Academy, which is like a very esteemed, prestigious yeah. art school in Michigan. His name was Joe, and he basically like got her the forms, and that was life-changing. And mm -hmm. she later writes, like, Joe had a connection. It's like, I don't think Joe had a connection. I think Joe <laughs> printed out the paperwork, but no one had ever shown her the way out. Never, No one had ever shown her how to get to more. And so this is the one thing her mom teaches her. And again, it, like, really indicates her age, where she said she got a letter saying she was accepted, and but she was only given a partial scholarship. And so her, she said, my mom taught me a system I still use when looking for a solution to a problem. Her, write your goal down on a piece of paper, Jewel. Me, go to Interlochen in the fall. Now write down what you need to accomplish that. Earn $10,000. Now write down ways you can earn that. I thought and thought and finally came up with the idea of a fundraising concert. I wrote that down. Now write down a date to play the concert. I chose one month before school started. Now write down what you need to do in order to pull off that concert. Get help organizing it. Who can do that? Maybe friends will help. What else do you need to do? Find a venue. And so it was really just like how to have an idea and execute that idea and 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 like how to produce, how to make your own thing. And this might be silly, but I, I don't know where I got that information, but I always had a brain like that. And you forget that like this is something that like needs to be taught. Like this is the one thing standing in people's way, you know? Totally. And it's so funny because I was reading that thinking the same thing. I was like, this is actually really helpful. <laughs> like it's so yeah. obvious, but when you see it, we, we don't really break things down in that way. Like we get very, we get overwhelmed with a big idea and we don't sit down to like really break it down. And, yeah. and it, it doesn't take much to break it down and to like put it in, like actually put a plan out there. And you're right. We aren't taught that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is like, um, Everything from it's entrepreneurship like goal. to goals to business. Yeah, it was yeah. like, oh, yeah. And like at 15, she learns it. And then she pulls off a fundraising concert and her entire hometown helps her get $10,000 so she can do this year of school. And she says, like, I'll probably only get one year, but I would just love to learn about art. So I'll go mm -hmm. do it. And she shows up to this boarding school and she said she shows up with like a knife fastened to her side that she always has on her. She's like pulled the knife on men who she thought might assault her. Like she just has a knife right, on. She skins squirrels to eat. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and the Dean is like, um, you can't have a knife here. And she was like, okay, I'll, I'll keep it in my room. <laughs> this was a huge, huge, uh, uh, thing I related to Jewel with. Again, I, I was just surprised by all this, where she's basically at this like really beautiful boarding school, but she's suffering through PTSD and doesn't know it. So she really talks about like how she's experiencing all these symptoms that she'll later find out are PTSD, but it's coming out in her eating habits mm -hmm. and how she's overeating and finds a 12 step book and starts her own chapter of OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous. And uh, this is the exact same eating disorder that I had. And like in college, like tried to go to OA meetings constantly. What surprised me about that chapter is that I thought like, I'm like, oh, this is where she's going to find her community and her people and people just like her. And it felt like she felt more alone within that and I guess it's like, it's like anything, like she was with a bunch of privileged people. Again, she had come from like, she was like skinning squirrels and she suddenly thrust into this group of like very privileged, rich kids for lack of yeah. a better. And she just felt 
completely isolated in yeah. that environment. I was prepared for for one story. And then I was like, oh, of course, she's not going to find her people here. These are not her people. Yeah, yeah. And she kind of talks about how like singing in bars, like she's just always friends with adults and just yeah. not really kids her age. That, that's such a good point. Oh, I loved her being like, I don't know. I don't have anywhere to go for like the holidays yeah. or for the summer. And so she's like finding ways to stick around campus and having her own Christmas by herself. And yeah. then during the summer is like, oh, I will hitchhike to Mexico. Um, I'll play my, my guitar on the street for bus money. And like my mom's going to be there for a couple of weeks. So I'll meet her there. And she yeah. just spends this summer. It's so like, it's wildly <laughs> dangerous. It yeah. is so dangerous. But that's what's so interesting about her. Like she feels safest in very dangerous situations. Like she feels very uncomfortable at boarding school and very comfortable hitchhiking to Mexico. Yeah. So yeah. it's like all kind of relative when you think about like, what is danger? And it really is how we, how we perceive ourselves, right? Yeah. Like how we- yeah. And your perception. I mean, again, I'm going to relate this back to trauma, but it's like when you're built to withstand like dangerous situations and not knowing what's next, like being in a dorm room is what feels weird. That's oh. what you don't know how to navigate. And so that's why that feels like danger. Totally. I, yeah. I relate to that part for sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So on this summer trip, she doesn't know how to play guitar, but she's like, I need to play guitar on the street to make money. So she learns four chords and she ends up writing some of her greatest hit songs, like the first ones that come out, like she writes the main single, who will save your soul. Yes. That was her first soul, song my hands. she wrote. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Um, yeah. I, I just, I was really like, Oh, of course this like beautiful, like artistic summer is like what, you know, gives her these like songs, even though she's like still a teenager. Then she goes back to school. She's like, I can't afford it. They find a way to give her a scholarship. I'm like, thank God. Thank God. Like one adult has noticed this child and is helping. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then another thing I loved and wanted to point out. So now, now we kind of like leave school and she gets a boyfriend. There's this like Grand Canyon journey. And like mm-hmm. the Grand Canyon is a huge part of uh, my geography of, of, of places where a place where many things happened in life. And she's in the Grand Canyon and experiencing it. And I realized for the first time that she has a boyfriend in these pages that art, journaling, like little moments like that will get pages and pages and pages of details and a boyfriend and love life and losing virginity will get like two sentences. Nothing. Yeah. We never got to know him. That was, I thought the same thing. I was like, wait, is she there camping with her boyfriend? Like I, I felt the same yeah, like, way. Who is this guy? Where'd he come from? We don't know. There was very little, very little information about him and very yeah. little information about any of her relationships, really, even like later on with her husband for a memoir you know, I, you would tend to think that you were going to get some salacious details about the, the, the relationships. And she's like, nope. Nope. Um, and I kind of loved it where she's like, this doesn't matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're just, yeah, this is like not an important part like, of my he was life. Just there. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I love this. Yeah. <laughs> I think I really loved it. Yeah, totally. Um, and then kind of from here is where she's going to move in with her mom down in San Diego. Mm-hmm. She's going to be paying rent. One day she's going to come home and say like, I can't pay the rent on this place. And her mom is like, I have a great idea. Let's move into our cars. And then they both, they each move into their cars. And then at one point her mom is like, I'm going back to Alaska, like, bye. And she, this is when she starts, she becomes homeless. Yeah. Which I found to be like, 
I, I just that idea. I think when you're reading this, you're like, wait, how could her mom leave her there? But it's also just so normal for her for life to be like that, that that's what takes place. Yeah. And she also isn't, she's not like feeling sorry for herself or angry or like, I can't believe this is happening to me. She's like, and then I was homeless. And then I like got up, was living in a van and then my shit got stolen from the van. It's not foreign to her. Like you said, like this has just been her life for the whole time she's had yeah. to figure it out. And so she's really kind of always been homeless. She kind of had this whole, like, she's been like this vagabond kid who yeah. probably in a lot of ways to the point earlier about being comfortable, like this is where she's comfortable kind yeah. of living off the land. Um, okay. So let's go to these years where she's, uh, I don't know if it's years plural. It's hard to tell, but she's living in her car and she becomes agoraphobic. She's getting sick all the time. Mm -hmm. And then one day she's stealing a dress in the dressing room for her birthday. And she looks in the mirror and she's like, no, I want to be a person who can buy this dress. And like, how am I going to get there? And she realizes that she needs to make money. The only way she's ever been able to make money and like, because she doesn't have a, a resume or uh, an address, she can't get a quote unquote, maybe I don't want to say normal job, but she can't get the type of job you think of. And so she's, she's got to sing and she goes to these coffee shops and they're like, we keep all the money. You can have the tips. And she gets irate. Like, but we bring, we bring yeah. the customers in the money should go to us. So she finds this one cafe, no music is playing. And she goes inside. It's called the interchange. And she says, can I play music here? And if I do, can we split the door and, and like make this a fair deal. And the woman says, yes. And Jewel starts playing all these songs she had written while hitchhiking and at school. And she builds her own audience and makes her own moment and like hands out flyers. And, and she's living in a van this whole time. And I just loved it so much. Like it spoke to this lesson. I feel like I have to learn all the time, which is like, make your own work. Like, don't play into the system, make your own yeah. moment. And and she really, she made this like show that starts getting sold out and like DJs hear about it and want to play her on the radio. And like, I was just so impressed by this. Yeah, it also felt very 90s. Like it was very like yeah. zine, punk rock, DIY, do yourself. It's so specific to like that moment in time too. The way she was able to build her own career was so like decades specific. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. And like, she, she talks about how at her show, she'll be like, be quiet. Like I'm playing this song and like, don't go to the bathroom until this song is over. Yeah. Like don't, don't use the coffee machine. Like there was a moment where oh, she yeah. had like had to talk to the barista. She's like, when I'm playing, you will not make the cappuccinos. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, cause she just takes her music so seriously. And and then she writes like talking about and she's talking about um, playing these five hour sets. And she writes talking about my shame and fear actually caused others to accept me. True safety was not in having armor. It was in vulnerability. I was also a ham and chatted up the folks who watched creating a very personal connection. And I said, theme of the podcast. It's the theme of the podcast. <laughs> um, and then talking about like sharing, bringing people together and also... She says true safety was not in having armor. Isn't that the title of her poetry collection? Yeah. 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 It's an, a night without armor. Yeah. Right? A night without that, armor. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. like taking it down and like showing yourself. And like, I will say during this time, she, two really crazy stories happened before she quote unquote gets discovered. She said, I sat in a parking lot with my guitar working on a song. 
A guy wearing funny glasses came by and stood listening. I didn't look up until I had worked out a phrase and I instantly recognized him. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. His band was absolutely the biggest at the time. It was unmistakably him in a parking lot at a cleansing institute. He sat down next to me and told me to play some more, so I did. He said I was good and asked if I had a deal. No, I replied, not even remotely. Flea asked if I knew any good waves, and I said I did. So we went surfing. He meditated and was sweet and kind. And, and, and you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Flea gives her his, her big break. Yeah, no, no. Then he just leaves. <laughs> he and then just we went leaves. surfing. Like that. Yeah, he just leaves. And then later, when she's famous, she, she's like, hey, Flea. And he's like, oh, my God, parking lot girl. And they become, like, yeah, good friends bass. for the rest of her life. And he plays ba- bass on You Were Meant For Me. Yeah. But I was kind of shocked that he wasn't like, (laughs) one, I loved that he was just, he could hear a true musician and connected with her. Uh, Two, I love that the story doesn't go wayward. And then, but three, I was like, bitch, give her a business card. (laughs) Totally. He's like, let's go surfing. And then he like goes back and leaves her on the side of the road. Yeah. And he's like, see ya. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. Um, and then her shows start getting bigger and bigger and it like becomes this like underground, like, oh my God, the cool show to go to. And 
She <laughs> writes, Ike Turner came in one night. <laughs> I said, no, no. I mean, Tina Turner's memoir was one of the first ones I covered on this podcast. That's my, I just love her so much. So I'm, I'm already so upset. She said, the movie What's Love Got to Do With It had been out not long before and the coffee shop was a buzz. In the room, dead quiet, apart from my own voice, he commented loudly on my singing to his friends. At one point, I stopped in the middle of the song and asked him to kindly be quiet. The regulars were expecting me to, but still, when I did, a bit of a ripple went through the crowd. Ike nodded as if he was impressed and didn't seem to mind the extra attention and being shushed. But instead of settling in quietly, he stood up and handed me a signed 8 by 10 photo of himself. After the show, I looked at it. He handled being illiterate with flair, signing, in quotes, his glossy with a stamp. So it's a stamp that he just stamps the headshots with that said, what's love got to do with it? Not a damn thing. Ike Turner. Boo. (laughs) He had a stamp made to say what's love got to do with it? Not a damn thing. Sort of capitalizing on this movie about how horrifically abusive he was to Tina Turner. Yep. I was really upset. It, no, no, you should be really upset. It's like, it, 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 he, he's like very much like a super villain. But what was interesting too was that she, she doesn't judge anybody really ever. There's a lot of people that she could judge, that she should judge, and she doesn't do it. Like she doesn't do it with her father. She doesn't do it even with her mother. Yeah. Um, and I think like that's, even with someone like Ike Turner, who's like obviously like, and at that time too, like everyone hates him. Yeah, he, he yeah. must know that he's hated, and he like he's he's like kind of like getting off on that too, which makes yeah. him even more abhorrent. But she's like not even going to give him that satisfaction. Like I feel like there's power in that, and not giving him that, not being like fuck him, that asshole, because that's what he was almost looking for. It felt like, yeah, and for her not to respond that way. I was like, I feel like there's a there's it's a very evolved way of dealing with things I believe is not to good point and and in her writing I think I maybe projected this but I sort of took it as like his actions speak for themselves like she doesn't have to write what a piece of shit because it's exactly. clear mm-hmm. from from what he did and this is like I actually teach memoir like I do a memoir class a grief memoir class and this is something that I was talking about yesterday I said you can write as honestly as possible like you can write honestly about the people in your life all the things they do you can write about your friend who killed somebody you can write about that without judging them then you don't have anything to worry about because there's always these you know people always ask the question like how do you write about people you have complicated relationships with people that you've had have been traumatized by you can write about that she does such a good job doing that in this book writing about her experience through her own lens about what how she felt about what without judging them and then you leave it up to your reader to do that that is so beautifully said and like what a gift of a class you teach and also like you know I'm I'm in the final stages of finishing my book and and I needed that I needed to hear that today yeah it is so hard to navigate especially um living characters too like how do you write about someone who's still in your life and yeah but also like just writing your own experience and not theirs and just writing the facts and and you know yeah, that's really powerful. Yeah, and this was, I thought, like a masterclass in that. Like, the, I mean, we'll get to her dad later in this conversation, yeah. but that to me was the most interesting part, as we talked about before, is like her lack of judgment. Like, she tells us straight up, he abused her. Like, he did some fucking shit. 
Yeah. But yeah. there's not, it, she doesn't talk. He, we don't come out of that book, at least I don't, villainizing her father. I don't villainize anybody from that book. And that's when yeah. you know that someone is able to tell and is at the point in their healing where they can talk about their experience honestly yeah. and like, like brutally so yeah, without yeah. judgment. Yeah. I think that's it's so, yeah, so well said. And, um, I, I'll actually, I, I just want to skip to it now because you're speaking to it, which is that later in life, she heals a lot with her father and he's a big part of her life now. And she's able to revisit things, but it's also because he goes to therapy. He mm-hmm. works. So she's not just coming to him being like, I forgive you now. It's like, he does all this work to come to her and say, like, I handled things wrong in your childhood. And and here's who I want to show up as. And, and they work together on it. And then, especially when it comes to writing about the memoir, she wrote this in here. She said, when I told him about the book I was going to write, he said, Jewel, this was your life. The things I did affected you and you have a right to talk about them. He is willing to be seen on every step of his journey. This takes courage. I like to think of my dad as his true self now. I think as a child, he was a gold statue covered in wounds and abuse under layers of mud and crud. I feel I am getting to know who my dad really is and who he was meant to be. What? Yeah. I, that actually kind of like made me emotional. I like, know, what a I gift just, from your parent. Got what that gift too. from your parent. Yeah. And, and a gift from her back to him. It's like yep. true, true healing. Yeah. Like it's such a like beautiful gift to give somebody is to empower them and embolden them and to support them for speaking honestly, even if it's at your own expense. Yeah. Right? I also like feel like I, you can tell me if this is true or not. Like it's that same thing of like you're writing about yourself. Whereas I think about a memoir like Huma Abedin's where she's like, my kid was totally unscathed from the divorce. And you're like, that's your kid's experience. And you don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have no totally. idea. Yeah. And, and it's like to write about yourself, honestly, as a full human, I totally agree with you. It's such a gift. And it's, it's way more scarring to be false or to write false statements. To me, it's unfair for your family, for your friends, for the people in your life that you're coming out with this piece of work that's that's false. And everyone knows that. Like, I've known people who've come out with books and I know that's not the full story. Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. Yeah, I feel this so much because it's something it's something I've really been navigating of like, how much do you tell? Like, will I regret opening up so much? Will I regret not opening up so much? Like, what about when I don't tell the full horrificness of something like is that uh is that a scam to me and I recently gave my little brother a chapter that really talks a lot about his dad and and Mm. a part of our lives that was really really awful and I had tried to write it somewhat nicely because that's my little brother's life too and he was like don't hold anything back like what if this is the only account of our family's history that we Mm. get I don't want my kids to read this and not have like both of our truth. And I was like, holy shit. And he was like, go in and like, don't hold back. Um, But it takes people giving you that gift to be able to do that. And that's such a gift that you have, that you were given his, not that you need his permission or his blessing, but the fact that you have that. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's such a, it's such a beautiful gift to give somebody is to validate them and validate their experience and support them for whatever story they feel like they have to tell in order to heal is such a gift. That was so beautiful, Rebecca. Okay. Back into Jewel's (laughs) memoir. So Jewel gets, uh, she gets her huge break. So um, a manager named Inga is like, I fully believe in you. We're giving you a record deal. 
Jewel calls her mom and is like, mom, I'm getting a record deal. Her mom is like, this is incredible. Let me come down and help you. All she asks for from the label is uh, for them to pay rent on a house she can live in with her mom and for a used car, which they give her. And what I love about this is that she records her album and, and, and all these things go into it, but it takes two years, two entire years of uh, playing gigs and opening for people and doing press before Pieces of You actually hits. And at first it's somewhat considered a failure. And two years after it comes out, it's, it's going to become one of the best selling records in history. Yeah. Which I just think that's such an incredible story. The amount of time she could have given up before it hit. And here is where Sean Penn comes in. Sean Penn sees her play on Conan. And she also talks about how a big break for her was being on TV because people could hear her music and they were like, that's fine. But somehow when they saw her play and I think saw who she is and more of her story, yeah. she really starts to get famous, including uh, Sean Penn being like, hey, um, will you write a song for a movie I'm directing? And uh, it's called The Crossing Guard. Have you ever seen this movie? No, or no. heard of it. No. I had not heard it. I was like, what is this? Uh, maybe, listen, Cookie Watch Night. I don't know, on the Patreon. But um, <laughs> so he like tracks down her number on the homestead and like finds her and is like, we have to meet. And clearly he like starts flirting with her and it's like going to become this relationship. And she talks about how he's a fantastic flirt. She talks about how um, he said it would, he sells her one night, like it would be impossible not to fall in love with me. I looked at him to see if it, he was serious. It seemed like he was, he flies her on a private plane to like go to the premiere of the crossing guard. Okay, <laughs> so what did you, what did you think of Sean Penn who he is, his personality, how he shows up in her life. I mean, they they do date for a while. I mean, it was like these kind of cartoonish relationships that she had. And yeah. it felt like a dream sequence. Like she's yeah. like, suddenly I'm on a private jet. Also, the fact that she's Jewel and she's just been living in a van and then she meets Sean Penn and suddenly she's on a like his private jet. Like it, it's like this sort of intense, like fairy tale type of story. Absolutely. But she's not treating it like that. She's like, yeah, and then I was on his Judd. And, like, she's not, like, she's not, like, wowed by it. She doesn't seem, like, really that affected by she's it. She's, like, in more a way uncomfortable. That, yeah, so it's kind of like this, it, it felt really funny to me. I was like, wait, what's happening? Like, now she's on, now she's in Venice, like, with yeah. George Because like, I feel like, oh, no, with, like, it's Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a picture of her and Jack Nicholson, like, on a boat together. And, like, yes. listen, other times when Jack Nicholson shows up in memoirs, <laughs> He's there. He's he's down a clown. He's fucking this. Dude, yeah, totally. Every time Jack Nicholson's name appears two sentences later, it's like and then this was him fucking someone, me or totally. someone else. Yeah, that's not in here. She's like, we no. went on a boat. Yeah. Well, that's not in here, but I don't know. I like, don't know either. I don't know why is a picture of Jack Nicholson in here from it, one boat there's trip. There's not that many I'm pictures sure. in that, like, middle section. There's, I like, know. what, 15? And one of them is of Jack Nicholson, so. Like, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what's, what is this? But this, this was my Sean Penn takeaway, which is why I love reading celebrity memoirs. In Shania Twain's memoir, when she starts to get famous, who does she get a phone call from? Sean Penn. And Sean Penn is like, Shania Twain, I've got to meet you. I'm such a fan. And then he shows up, finds out Mutt Lang, her um, like 
co-writer who she, you know, marries for many years and that he's actually in the picture. And then Sean Penn just directs her music video. But I feel on God after reading this, that Sean Penn was like, I'm gonna fuck Shania Twain. And then was like, whoops, she's taken. Okay, what's Jewel up to? Like he had a type, like this is what yeah, he was doing. He had a type, he, he wanted new, like uh, brand new singer songwriter females who were getting their first break. So that's really, is, <laughs> I wonder so how many- And then Madonna. Oh, totally. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, this was like his, this was this totally thing. his thing. Yeah. I wonder so how weird. many other memoirs he's, I mean, you've read a lot of them. Yeah, these I wonder are the only how, two I can remember. You have to do Sean. a, what is your like bingo drinking game? You drinking need to do a game, Sean, bingo, yeah. Sean, Sean Penn needs to be a square. Yeah, Sean Penn is a square and also his move is uh, let's work together. Yeah. And then he flips it into a relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he comes and be like, for right movie. for me. Yeah. The crossing guard. Um, and then she says, Sean and I parted ways before I ever became super famous. The breakup was hard for me. And that's kind of as much as we get about mm-hmm. the breakup or why it ended and just that she went through a hard time. At this point, her mom is her manager and is trying to get more and more power. So. Her mom believed herself to be the reincarnation of a famous entrepreneur. Right. Even though she had no business training. And then she said her mom was building an empire for both of them. So Jewel was becoming hugely famous and touring and making millions of dollars. And her mom handled all the money. Her mom gets rid of the first manager. Inga. Inga. Yes. I don't know why I'm struggling with Inga. And, um... And it's like, Inga should get out of here. I should handle all the money in the business. I'm doing it all anyway. And she starts a publishing arm, a screenwriting arm, a charity arm. And she says she flies yoga instructors in from Hawaii and takes jets everywhere. That's not the part I relate to. The part I relate to is that her mom has this friend named Jackie. And Jackie channels an entity called, I believe, Zahustra. But they just call him Z. She channels mm. this famous spirit named C. And, um, you know, did I, did, I, did I also talk to a, f- a family friend who channeled a famous spirit? Yeah, I sure did. I sure did, Rebecca. <laughs> and um, it's a very, it's a very Wait, is this thing. in your book? I want to hear more it's about not. this. No, it, it didn't even make the cut. It wasn't oh. even one of the most, uh, it wasn't even <laughs> something that truly affected me. But her mom sort of, is a follower of Z and gets Jewel to be a follower of Z. And it becomes a big part of her life where anytime she needs business advice, she goes yeah. to see what Z says. And also a, another big part is that they're talking about your frequency in life and like you have really low vibes. And if you don't raise your vibes, you're going to get cancer, Jewel. And so every time yeah. Jewel is like, hey, mom, I need I need to rest. Her mom is like, you need to raise your vibes and be stronger or you're going to get cancer. Get back on the road. Keep making money. I have yeah. some yoga instructors to hang out with in Hawaii. And she's really, because she wants her mom's love so much because she never got it as a kid, she lets her mom, unfortunately, like take over her life and her mom and Z become her managers. Yeah. That part is, it's really hard to read. Yeah. It just like makes me feel sick whenever I hear stories about that. Um, I just, like, can't even really wrap my head around, like, how, how a parent could do that. And just also, like, 
The fact that she was working as much as she was working, had no idea really how much she was making and that she just like kept working, kept working, kept working. How do you get to that point where you're able to, like where you want love from somebody so much that you're willing to like overlook every red flag. And I think she acknowledges this. Like I'm sure everyone in her life was basically saying you need to be more involved in what's happening here. Cause she just like, wasn't like, she yeah, has she no idea. See a bank statement. She is. And also cause she doesn't care. She doesn't want fancy things. So as long yeah. as she has the basics, I mean, I think it's um, so astute what you're saying too. And, and obviously it, it's so fascinating because the entire book you watch Jewel know when she's in danger, uh, yeah. like know when someone's being a predator, but she can't see it with her mom because with of that mom. desire for love and acceptance. They always say like survivors of cults, I think sometimes um, don't like the word cult because they're like, no one, jo no one joins a cult. No one yeah. is like, that's a cult. I want to yeah. be in it. You're a part of something else. You're a part of like growth, inner growth. You're connecting with your mom. You're just doing your best. And it's later when you realize that you've been indoctrinated into something and it's that need for acceptance. And I think, like you said, she ignores every red flag like this one when Jackie gets cancer and her whole thing was I channel Z <laughs> and I raise your frequency so that you don't get cancer. And her mom scares Jewel with getting cancer. And then the woman who channels Z uh, unfortunately passes away and she like tried to meditate cancer away. Yeah. And then Jewel says, I loved that woman. And as odd as it sounds, I loved Zara Hoothstra. I would never get to speak to either of them again. And that she had felt sort of, um, this connection with Z that she still grieves, which is, I, it, it sounds weird to say, sounds jewel, right? Like I realize this sounds crazy. Like as I'm writing this down, this, I know this sounds wild, but I loved again, how honest she was. Cause I think this is like how it feels when you're in it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And like, she believed it. It was real yeah. for her. So of course, yeah. like, of course she would grieve that. Of course. And yeah. I mean, then she, she wrote later, even though it had began to take bizarre turns near the end as Jackie channeled Jesus and even an oh, yeah. alien at one point. Yep. <laughs> Sounds weird to me now as I write about it. And what's so, so she loses Jackie who her mom was kind of using to, to control mm -hmm. Jewel of like, I have this higher source of information letting you know that like I'm an entrepreneur and it's all going to work out. And then at the same time, she meets this guy named Ty who is a rodeo star and he's going to become her first husband. And her mom then does everything she can to try and get Ty out of her life because Ty is the person who's like, I'm sorry, you're talking to who now? And like, where's your money? And like, why don't you look at bank statements? Mm -hmm. And so then her mom brings on a screenwriter who channels someone named Solano. She says, um, she began waging a war against Ty. I was told he was spiritual heroine and he was mm. lowering my frequency. Solano was gravely concerned for my welfare and my health. I was sure to get cancer. And before Ty can get her to look for her bank documents, she said, I gave into my mom and Solano and did the right thing. I chose life. I chose being cancer free. I chose my family. I left Ty. So it's really tough because the love story with Ty is like pretty intertwined yeah. with this. It really reminded me of Brooke Shields. I was just going to say that. Really? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Where like Brooke Shields could not get free of her mom without sort of 
having transferring power to someone she loved Tan, just as yeah. much as her mom, which is her first husband, Andre Agassi, who's exactly. the one who says this is crazy. It was, it's exactly what I was thinking of when I was reading it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's this beautiful thing where you're like so happy that like Andre Agassi and Ty are there to get her free, but then like, they're not going to be the saviors either. They're not like, right either. They're but not they right were either. There, like they, that was their role in her their life. Like that was, yeah, exactly. Oh, so true. And then again, in the middle of all this, this is a lot happening to Jewel at the same time. And she is now like one of the most famous women and famous songwriters in America on earth, maybe. And, uh, Inga sues Jewel and is like, you cut me out of this thing I created for you. Like I want my portion of the proceeds and they go all the way to court. And the judge is like, you guys need to settle this. Mm -hmm. You know, let's come up with a payment plan. Jewel is like, that's fine. That seems fair. And then she writes, we were standing in a triangle facing one another. My mom spoke, but the words seemed unreal. Jewel doesn't have the money to pay her. I stared at her dumbfounded. She chose this moment to tell us that I was broke. Where the hell did it all go? Igna said. And her mom just sat quietly and she said, her mom had basically squandered away millions and millions and millions of Jewel's, the money she'd made. It was all entirely gone. And Jewel asked to see bank statements and has to hire an independent auditor and an accountant to go through and show her what her mom had done to her life. And also in that moment, when I think like, obviously we were like, oh, this is woman's like a, clearly a narcissist, a sociopath, all the things is that she isn't reactive at all. She's not apologetic at all. She's like, yeah, it's gone. Like yeah. super no nonsense. Matter of fact, doesn't feel bad about it. Says it as if it's like just something that happened. Whoops. It rained um, today. Whoops. Yeah. yeah. Like has no, isn't. Remorse isn't at apologetic. All. Not at all. And it was also part of her to jewel like. I'm in control of my emotions. I meditate. I'm in a mm -hmm. higher realm. I know it's coming back to us. Like you should stop worrying. And then Jewel like struggles for a lot. Like that's not the moment she cuts her mom out. She says, I sense if my mom quit being my manager, she would quit being my mother. Solano's words kept ringing in my ears. If you leave your mom, what is yours will decline and what is your mom's will continue to rise. Let me remind you that Solano is being channeled by a screenwriter we've never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> this, is like, this is unbelievable. And finally she quits talking to Solano. She gets back together with Ty. Ty is like, look at your bank statements. And she tries to make things better with her mom. She's like, mom, just like sign over the, all the houses you bought and we can make this right. And then her mom refuses to. And so then she takes her mom back to court to just sign a document saying like, I am free of you. You're not my manager anymore. And her mom is like, I'm so excited to go back to being your mom. This is beautiful. And then she never hears from her ever again. Yeah. This is nuts. Yeah. And I think like to like to this day, right? Like they, they're still completely, that's it. Yeah, she's just never spoken to her again. I mean, then she and Ty go, grow closer. She, you know, he's like, I think you were maybe in a cult. She starts speaking to her dad again and finding out all the lies her mom had been telling her about her dad. And then, then the book goes pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Like, as we come to the end of it, she talks about how she and Ty get married and she redefines success for herself. Like she writes a lullaby album that mm -hmm. gets sold inside of a toy 
and makes millions of dollars back. But to the rest of everyone else, they think like what happened to Jewel? Yeah. But she is making music. It's just in these ways that aren't on the cover of Us Weekly anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah she's was, gone back yeah. to her roots and just trying, just like she's a hustler. Yeah. Like uh, that, that I like, I love that too. It's like, gotta like get back on the horse. Like, yeah. Gotta get back gotta on the get horse back on the, the cover horse. of my book. <laughs> totally. And she does. Yeah. Cause she's in debt. She has to like pay money back that her mom went into debt over. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, she, we do get a love story with Ty, which is a lot about like, he's a rodeo star. It's a lot about like connecting back to her roots of like being in the wilderness and camping and going hunting and, and riding and horses like and roping c- cattle. Yeah. And like hanging with the boys and everyone being like, Whoa, you know how to do stuff. And she surprises yeah. them. And I think it's like a reprieve from the music industry and, mm-hmm. and, but then you guys drinking bingo, Ty goes on Dancing with the Stars. I just, <laughs> we can't even go through Jewel's memoir without hearing about Dancing with the Stars. I cannot believe this man who is really described as like hyper-masculine, anti-pop culture goes on Dancing with the Stars, but it gets a lot of attention for like, you know, the rodeo and rodeo stars. And then as we know from the beginning of the book, they're going to get divorced. And what I found to be so interesting about this, the marriage is that she talks about how the marriage was falling apart right after they got married and they're fighting a ton. And then she gets pregnant. I thought it was going to be the other way around, but it sounds like it was sort of not meant to be before it ever began. Yeah. But maybe that's only in hindsight. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I can't tell either. It feel, it also, there was one point I feel like she talked about how he had said to her, like he was never going to get married. Yeah, he was like, I never want to get married. And then later is like, I changed my mind. I was like, no. Yeah, so like there was actually stuff about their relationship that I felt like there's a lot of contradictions within that part of the book, I felt, yeah. where I was like, not quite sure what, was up. Also, there was that guy Lee who comes into her life as like her manny, I guess. He's like I helping love her raise Lee. But we also don't get a lot of information about him except he's sort of been this constant in her life for so long. Yeah. And he seems to be like her platonic life partner now. Right. Yeah, like there's more pictures of him in the book than, than anyone. Yeah. And he's like really involved in her kid's life and seems like he's sort of this father figure. Um I wanted to know more about Lee. Me too. I mean, and for anyone listening, she meets Lee when she's 16. She's hitchhiking. He picks her up, realizes like he's from the same town. So he knows he's like, oh, you're Jewel. I've heard about you. And he's like, you should not be hitchhiking. You could get raped. She pulls the knife out of her jeans and she's like, "You are you planning to do that? And she puts it under his chin as he's driving. And he's like, no, no, I'm gay. I just want to look out for you. And they become best friends. And- mm-hmm. I think I feel better about him because she's known him since she was 16. I think if he was new in her life, I'd be like, what's going on? Yeah, totally. Why is he here when you're divorcing? And also he's there before the divorce. When she gets pregnant, she's like, Lee, come live with us and help me raise this child, which I imagine either made it easier or uh, something. When she starts going through the divorce, she kind of already has this other life partner. I also think it's interesting. And I guess I wasn't even thinking about this until you're talking about it now that like, all of the people, the only people that she really trusts and loves in her life have been men. Like yeah. she has no female relationship. She doesn't talk about a friend who's a woman. She doesn't talk, but obviously her mother relationship, she has these two brothers. Um, 
We never really hear about her relationships with women at all. Like, there's no positive friendships or relationships with women here. Like, there's, I think that's so astute. And again, I'm, I don't, I must be in like a comparison mood today, but it's like Mariah Carey has this horrible relationship with her mom. And then in the book, she doesn't have female friends. And like, that's very mm -hmm. much mirrored here. There's two women, there's two female friends, and they both have really sad endings in Jules' book where, it's the girl in middle school who is nice to her, despite everyone saying she's oh, like right. poor and gross. And then she steals all of the girls like clothes and jewelry. <laughs> she's like, I just want these things. I don't know how to be a girl. And then yeah. later she gets a female friend who she writes about how important and powerful it was to have this friend in life who wanted nothing from her to be her friend. And then she goes home with the girl to meet her family and the girl's dad takes her aside and is like, you're disgusting trash. Get out of my daughter's life. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost as if she could have had friends and she and tried and then it didn't work taken. out. Yeah. yeah. That was really interesting. All of her trusted people, all the people that she loves, all the people that matter to her are men. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's very potent in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the book kind of wraps up. She says, Ty and I filed for divorce in 2014. This is after she had her son case with him. She said that the shock was staggering. And she said, I found myself in a place I never imagined I would be. A 40-year-old divorcee with a three-year-old starting over again. My companion of 16 years was gone. And she said, I have to grieve the death of my marriage. I have to examine the dark corners of myself that have yet to be healed. And to be a steady, emotionally available and grounded mom for my son as I go through this transition. And it's where the book is kind of ending of like, I almost wonder if she started writing it before the divorce because it feels like such a surprise. Yeah, and it doesn't feel very, I mean, not that this is always the the note in memoirs, like it's unfinished because I think yeah. we all write up into the moment where we stop writing. Like we totally. it's like, okay, time to put your pencil down. Yeah. And it feels like that. Yeah, and she has so much more life after 43. Of course it's unfinished. Totally. <laughs> it's like just beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, then, then it ends. So it, it, I will say the way it ended, I was, I was like, okay, now I'm a little bit out here because she does start sort of teaching these self-help lessons. And I was like, I just, I liked it in the story form. I don't think I liked it as like broken out lessons. Totally but, agree. Yeah. Okay. I, I felt very strongly. This is not, this is not what we're doing here. Like, what are you doing? This is no, like, I, I was, was very like, like, stop, don't do it. No. I was, I was like, no, no, don't start bolding the lesson section. <laughs> like, and also it really gave me this sort of eerie thing I've been thinking about, which is like when you grow up with self-help and the woo-woo, which I did, yeah. you know, and then, but then you turn around and you just can't help but doing, and I yeah. do it in this, I did it in this podcast episode. You're like, here's a good lesson, you know, and you're like, you can't help, but like when you're inundated with it, turn around and try and pass it on. So I get that, but it's, it's very interesting to be like, no, don't teach the people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also, there was like a lot of contradictions I felt like in her teachings. Like I did start skimming the teachings, so I might've missed those. Tell me what you yeah. found. Well, let me see if I, right. Hardwood grows slowly. I did like yeah, that. She mentions one. that a lot. Yeah. That's like, the, that's like a kind of, that was the thing. motto. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I don't want to read access your greater intelligence. She you does. I mean? There's like a moment where she talks about how she doesn't believe in therapy. And then she talks about going to therapy. Like there's stuff like that. 
right. where she was like, she's very like anti-medication. There's some some stuff in here where I'm like, it feels a little bit like no, no, it, she's definitely libertarian. Like, yes, a libertarian. I will say in the beginning of the book, when she's talking about her grandparents' story, she was talking about the importance of a free country so much that I was yeah. like, there's something coming here later. Oh no, there's like a, it, it's a, it teeters. There's, there's a few areas. Also, we didn't talk about the Tupac interaction. Oh my gosh. How did we miss that? We have to talk about Tupac. Okay. Cause, cause that was kind of the moment for me where I was like, there was a lot of moments of cringe in this memoir where I just really like, yeah. was like, why are you doing, why are you telling this? There was also a moment where her father had talked about his sperm in front of the whole when she did Oz. Oh yeah. And he comes in and he's like, I guess I produced pretty good sperm. Yeah. Like um, there was a, there was a lot but, of stuff that I thought was. That's was funny. I liked that. Cause I was like, yeah, that's embarrassing. I'm glad. Yeah. Like, it's cool that you shared how embarrassing your dad was when you started to make it. But I agree at other parts. I was like, no, this is getting weird. Yeah. Like I just, I, there are parts like that sometimes where I'm like, what does this necessary? Like, I'm always thinking mm. about editing. Like what yeah. is this moving your story forward? Or are we just now making like the, and the Tupac part where she basically claims that she, you know, like she, she saw Tupac like the week before he was killed Yeah, at a premiere. Yeah. He, won't stop staring at her. He's basically just like all about her, like can't keep his eyes off her. She describes it as him doing this like, like, hey girl, like thing with his eyes and like can't keep his eyes off her. And people are talking about like, oh my God, Tupac is so into you. And then he dies and she's like, and then he died. And I felt so bad about it because like we had just made eyes at a premiere and it was so tone deaf. (laughs) That it... (laughs) It was funny because I do love a lot of the sincerity in the book, but then totally. I, it was like moments where it's like Sean Penn comes in and Tupac. I was like, yes. Okay. Now we're having fun. I needed some fun. So I think yep. I was like, oh, that's fun. And then I was like, that was so fucking weird. And cause it, it is also, it's a paragraph and a half. Yeah. And right above it is like Marilyn Manson. Oh, and- right. She talks about Marilyn Manson and like them having kind of a connection. I'm like, there was a lot in there that was like, really like. Yeah. Oh, and then she writes, Tupac had invited her to Vegas, which is where he's murdered. And she said, I heard he had a fiance. So I wondered why the hell he had invited me to Vegas. I'll never know. I was sorry about his passing. He was a great talent with undeniable star appeal. You're like, okay. And then three sentences later, she said, in the aftermath of the shock jock craze that the amazing Howard Stern started, I founded myself dealing with a few radio DJs who lacked his intelligence and talent. I'm like, no, don't send up Howard Stern, which again happens a lot in these books. And I know a lot of people think he's like so smart, but he's also like one of the biggest misogynists totally. <laughs> of our time. Yeah, he he was like all the stuff earlier about her weight. Like he was probably one of the people yeah. who was who was talking. Yeah, yeah, he would be like, "You're a big fat fatty. How do you totally. feel?" And she'd be like, "Oh, Howard, you know, totally. I I just that that was tough." I realized I was probably. Um, um, I just loved how how she survived so much. I think I gave a lot of grace to the more saccharine parts. Totally. And also, like I agree, and I thought her authenticity, like the fact that she was like kind of unafraid to be 
like cheesy and annoying and like, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. to say some of these things that you'd be like, really, you're admitting to that. There was a, the, the other parts that I felt like were cringe. I feel like we're just like, I feel like I'm like at the end, like just talking. No, I, we said a lot of beautiful things. I think we can Super, discuss some other. I say all of this with love, by the yes. way, this is all with love. Um, there was a lot of talk of Charles Bukowski and an Eisman <laughs> yeah. and all these authors. Yeah. And she mentions Bukowski several times. Yeah, who another noted misogynist. And again, like as someone who had a Charles Bukowski phase when I first moved to L.A., which I think everyone does. I think you literally you move here and you get like a copy of Ham on Rye, like with your first apartment. But <laughs> as a 40 year old woman, or I think she's 40 when she writes this book. She's Just a, yeah. There were certain things in here that felt very like young, you well, know? Yeah. I think I gave a pass to her because it exactly feels like, especially the age she was where it feels like you get handed Holden Caulfield, you totally. know, you, you get handed Catcher in the Rye and you're like, this is your favorite book now. And yeah. it feels like she, you know, she left school. She never got that. She never got that group of female friends or that book club to be like, Hey, guess what? There's other authors. Like it kind of stopped there yeah, because it was the only books given to her. Right. Yeah. Right. But no, you're totally right. And and all the celebrities, all of her experiences with celebrities are, are all dudes. men. Yeah. Always. There's a Bob Dylan one where she asked to touch his nose and he, and I was like, that's yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That was another moment. That was yeah, cause she's like, it was so bulbous. And I'm like, this is <laughs> what? And like, he's very complimentary of her music yeah. and um, kind of takes her under his wing. I think yeah. there, Neil Young does at one point too. That's right. That's right. Again, and all me, men, no. All men, all, no women. That is, yeah, very, very astute. I'm glad we called all that out because, you know, then it ends in lessons. And then here, her mom is named Lenedra, but then she starts going by a different name. And then I believe Jewel calls her Nedra, but her mom writes a book in 2001 Mm -hmm. published with Jewel's money. And the book is called The Architecture of Abundance. And it's about abundance and how she raised Jewel and she's she's building this, you know, empire or whatever. Then Jewel is ending her book. She does a lot of teaching, a lot of like self-help. And this is the very last paragraph. This is serious. Every day that passes is another day closer to looking back on your life and seeing whether you have done something meaningful. Don't let the days pass without doing something great. Be the architect of your dreams. Final sentence of the book. And that is kind of that thing I was saying earlier where it's like, does she realize that's almost the title of her mom's book that is entirely false? Is it, is it purposeful? The whole ending feels like she's like channeling her her mother. Like the, the she's, whole ending felt like I'm a little guru now, just a little bit. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it also kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, it wasn't like she had in every chapter like a break where she introduced a concept or something. It was suddenly yeah. it was like, this is what I learned from my life. Here are my bullet points for you to take home. After Which I thought. The ten- I- Another thing I thought was such a bummer is that we we already learned those bullet points, but we learned them in story form, and they were so much better in that form, I felt Yeah, like. and honestly, like, to cr- critique, I would critique her editor and publisher before I would critique her, because yeah. we all know that, like, we, you know, we're, we're in our own worlds, and we're writing our books, and we don't, at some point, we're like, is this working? We need people that are, like, behind us to tell us when they are and are not. Uh, and I feel like she kind of got, I mean, I don't know, maybe she was like adamant that this needed to be yeah, in there. Yeah. But there were definitely some moments in her book where I was like, oof, someone should have protected her from herself here. I, 
Yes, that's so, <laughs> so true. And I mean, listen, I got on her Instagram immediately. I was like, where's Jewel now? What is Same. going on now? And I had this vague memory of this and then I remembered it, which is, you know, The Sound of Freedom is a documentary that <gasps> came out. That that's is, what I just saw her talking about that. Yep. Yeah. And she's a huge part of pushing that out in the culture. And here's the thing, I haven't seen it, but people are saying like, you know, it, it has a little bit of um, Pizzagate, alt-rights, fluid facts. QAnon, yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Leanings, but also is, you know, a, a, the story about um, child trafficking, which is a very real and, and horrific thing that that's happening in large numbers. And so, but it, it's that line where she's like, Right when, right when she said a free country for the third time in chapter one. Yeah, that's like politically, I I have feelings for what, where her allegiances are. Um, yeah. Well, I think that like yeah. after reading that book, anyone might. But again, yeah. like she doesn't really talk about it. She kind of stays away, but her lifestyle suggests her choices. There, There's like a little bit of a like, a yeah. wink. And I, yeah. I but but then you read the book you're like no, Jewel would vote for gun regulation, right? And then you're like, "Wait, why am I thinking this? This is supposed to be her like life memoir." Yeah, to her credit, I mean, into like the credit of libertarianism of which I do not subscribe. There that's the whole point, right? It's like you're there's this me for myself kind of thing. Like she's a she's a cowgirl. Like yeah. she's living off the land, killing her own squirrels. Like she's, she's not looking for handouts or whatever. Right. Like yeah. she's very much like her own woman. Um, and very clearly states that. So yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So this is the end of the podcast. We do something I call the book test. The first question is <laughs> it's a play on Bechdel. By the I, way, <laughs> to that point, this totally passes the Bechdel test because she, she's never talking about men romantically or very rarely. Very she, rarely. So yeah, this- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, she's talking to her mom about why she stole all, all her money that it, that passes the Bechdel test. Totally. Um, now for the book test, first question is, was the author vulnerable in the sharing of her truth? For sure. Yeah, I say a thousand. Totally. Yeah. Question number two: Was it entertaining to read? Yes. Yeah, I'm also gonna say for the most part until we got to the lessons, but up until that point, I liked it. It, Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. I think I also tapped out for a lot of the poetry, uh, which I think a lot of people will love, but I personally tapped out. I 100% agree. Okay. Final question: Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Did it elevate my life? I'm gonna. And it can be no. I'm going to have to say no on that one. Yeah, I get it. I I get it. I'm going to say yes. I really loved the grit, but specifically uh, there was one piece that I really liked ruminating on. I'm going to read it. Okay. She said, people often talk of regrets. It's tempting to bravely say I have none. Each thing has shaped me into the human I am. I feel that way about most hardships in my life, but not all of them. I have one regret that haunts me. It happened at a fork in the road I did not see at the time. If I had a time machine and could change one single moment, it would be the day I went to a payphone and made a collect call to Homer to tell my mom that the record labels had come to see me. If she had never come back down, if she'd never been involved in my career, I am confident I would have been better off. 
And I think I also just like have regrets and you want to not have them because they feel like obstacles to healing. But like maybe they're not. Maybe it's good to be like, I wish that never fucking happened. And I just wish it didn't happen. The end. And um, I really liked that she included that in a book that is so much about healing. Totally. And I I feel like my answer should maybe be a little more nuanced because I, I like going back to what I said before, I think whenever you read somebody's story who doesn't judge themselves or the people who've fucked them over, essentially, yeah, yeah. that's really noble and beautiful and something that re- I really respond to and that resonates for me and is something that I'm like, I would recommend to others to read if only for that reason. Like, that's something that she does really beautifully and is extremely compelling and um, had an, a, like a, a very, you know, strong effect on me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's really beautifully said. And, um, I, we did not, um, get into what your memoir is about, but I think I just learned so much from you just in this conversation. So will you please tell listeners a little bit about your book so they can find your book, find your work, support you, your Substack, all of that. Totally. Yeah. My book is called all of this. Actually the paperback comes out today. What? Um, Congratulations. <laughs> That's so I was exciting. Like, I think the paperback comes today. And then I checked and I was like, oh yeah, it comes out today. Um, so it is available where all books are sold. It's called All of This, a memoir of, of death and desire. It's about my experience navigating my husband's death. My husband was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, very soon after I had decided that I was done with the marriage and wanted out of it. So um, it is a book about what that was like for me as a, as a wife, as a widow, um, as a mother. Um, I talk about the experience before he was sick, while he was sick and the months and year that happened. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Now. I am, I am loving it. I can't wait Thank to be you. done with Jewel so I can go <laughs> finish your Thank book you. now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I have a sub stack called the braid, um, where I write about, all the things that are in my book, sex, death, parenting, dating. Um, it's Rebecca Wolf, which is my full name, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-W-O-O-L-F at Substack. And I have um, a column called Sex and the Single Mom on romper.com. I write about dating for single moms. And um, what else? What else? You can find me on Instagram at Rebecca Wolf. And yeah, I think that's I, think that's it. I, I love it. Um, Go, go find Rebecca. I'm so glad we were connected. Thank you so much for coming on and reading thank this whole so book and doing such a long me. episode. There was so much to talk about, but thank you so much. And I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Me too. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month and then for higher level tiers we do a live book club on zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode so no reading required that's patreon.com slash chelsea and that is where we love your support and that's also where the community is 
A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ Bouncy House, assistant, Jaron Padre, and our executive producer, Jordan Mercada. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen, and I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tinteo, Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes and you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights where I am always on Instagram at Chelsea Fontes and I'll see you there or for another episode soon. Bye.